Almighty God and Father, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will succeed in the matter for which you have sent it. It will accomplish the work that you've given it to do. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So this is the first Sunday in Lent, and the Gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent is always the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, you've heard it read, and I think many of you are familiar with it already. So here's my question to you. Imagine that you're the preacher this morning. And it's your job to understand the passage and to explain it to the congregation. What are you going to say? What's the main point of the passage? Okay. What's the main point? And how are you going to communicate that? Just think about it. I'll tell you what many sermons this morning sound like. Okay. They sound like this. Jesus overcomes the devil in the wilderness. And he overcomes him by quoting scripture. And the devil flees. Therefore, if I'm going to overcome the devil in my wilderness areas of life, if I just marshal enough scripture or the right texts, the devil will flee from me and I will overcome him as well. Now, I have no doubt that many Christians around the world are hearing that sermon or something similar to it this morning. Jesus is our model for how we can win over Satan too. I've probably preached that way myself. I probably have somewhere along the line. One of these first Sundays in Lent, way back when, but is that what the passage is about? Is the passage really about you overcoming the devil? Or is it about someone else doing that? I think it's the latter. And here's why. Because people who are better than you and I have tried to overcome the devil and they failed miserably. People better than we are met the devil face to face and they crashed and burned. Roman numeral one, page nine. Adam failed and Eve. Now, Adam had all the advantages you and I don't. Adam walked with God. He knew God intimately, face to face. And I would hazard to guess that Adam was a much better theologian than anyone alive today, and Eve as well. They knew God in a way we will someday, but not yet. And yet, the devil came and defeated them, despite their advantages. Letter A 
St. Paul writes in our epistle reading, for as by the one man's disobedience, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You and I were all made sinners through Adam's sin. That's because a sinner can beget only another sinner. Job asked this question, who can bring what is holy out of what is unholy? Who can bring something good out of what is not good? It's impossible. That applies to all of Adam's descendants, you and me. Letter B, St. Paul writes, for as in Adam all die. In Adam all die. That includes us. My daughters used to play for East High School and run for East High School. And if they won a meet or a game, all of us would say, we won. I wasn't on the field. The team was on the field, but they were our team. You know, it was, in a sense, it was our DNA out there on the field. Now, in the same way, When Adam loses, all of us lose, because that's our DNA going down. And as it's passed down generationally, it doesn't get better. It's fallen, it's condemned. That's true for all of us. So Adam fails. Roman numeral two, Israel failed. Israel failed. And scripture makes very clear, that God viewed Israel as his son. I'll give you just one example, Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, however, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now you've got to understand, Israel had all the advantages. They had a covenant with God through Abraham. They had another covenant with God through Moses. They had the sacrificial offerings. They had the word of God. And yet, when confronted by the devil in the wilderness, they crashed and burned. Letter A. St. Paul tells us that Israel was baptized just as we were. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, all of our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That Red Sea experience was their baptism, it was their initiation as the people of God. And then immediately, God led them into the wilderness. He could have led them by the way of the sea along the Mediterranean, but he led them into the wilderness to be tested. And number one, Israel did not trust God to provide. He did not trust God to provide. I quote Deuteronomy 8.3 just because Jesus does. There Moses writes this, the Lord caused you to hunger. He humbled you and he caused you to hunger in the wilderness so that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But they didn't learn. And number two, Israel tested the Lord in the wilderness. 
Israel tested the Lord. Exodus 17, the people are camping at a place called Rephidim, also Massah it's called. And there's no water. And so the people complain. They're ready to stone Moses. You've led us out here into the desert only to destroy us. And they were asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? That's putting him to the test. And so Moses said, you shall not put the Lord to the test as you did at Massa. And Jesus quotes it in our gospel reading for today. And then number three, Israel worshiped idols. You know, the golden calf, but it didn't stop there. There were other incidents of idol worship in their wilderness wanderings. And so Moses in Deuteronomy 6 says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear and serve him only. Again, quoted by our Lord in our gospel reading. So Israel fails. Despite having the covenants, the word of God, the sacrificial system, all of this grace given to them, they fail. Roman numeral three, Jesus then takes the field. You know he was baptized, it's right before our gospel reading for today, the end of Matthew chapter three, he's baptized, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And then immediately the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to test him, to humble him, to test him. And number one, he trusted God to provide. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread only, but by every word of God. You live today, I live today by God's permission. He's spoken a word. Live and we draw breath. One day he'll withdraw that word and our breath will leave. But he trusted in, the, in God to provide. Number two, he refused to test the Lord. He told the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting Deuteronomy 6. And number three, he worshiped the Lord only. Quoting Deuteronomy 13, you shall fear the Lord and serve him only. Jesus takes the field. Jesus does not crash and burn. So, number four, the application. Just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, letter A, by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus reverses what Adam did. He reverses the damage Adam caused. He backs the whole thing up and reverses it. Letter B. So in Christ, all will be made alive. In Christ, all will be made alive. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. Jesus reverses the death that Adam brought upon us all. That's the good news. And letter C. His victory is ours. His victory belongs to us. Now, think about that. I don't know how many of you are sports fans, but I'm gonna use this analogy this morning. Uh, many of us identify with certain teams, right? Maybe your child plays on a certain team. You identify with that team. You've got that connection there. 
Maybe you graduated from Purdue or IU or Valpo, okay? And uh, <laughs> uh, so you've got a connection, right? And you identify with the team. You cheer for the team. When they win, you say, we won, right? If, if you have that connection, that's the kind of speech you use to describe the victory, right? But the truth is, Purdue, IU, the other schools, you know what? They don't know you. They don't really, I mean, they appreciate the fact that you cheer for them and you support them, but if you die tomorrow, they won't know and they won't care, quite frankly. But what if there was a team that not only would not wait for you to identify with it, but imagine a team that would take the initiative to identify with you. Imagine a team like that. How, how would you feel about a team that identified with you so completely that it dedicated all of its victories to you? What if the team said, you know what, when we play, we play for you. And when we win, all the rewards of victory go to you. You receive the trophy. You receive the endorsements. You receive the prize money. If a team went out of its way to identify with you in that fashion, do you think you might be inclined to support that team? I would. Now that's what I call Team Jesus. Now Team Adam failed you. Team Israel failed you, failed itself. But in the person of Jesus, God so identifies with sinful humanity that every righteous thing Jesus accomplishes, it's credited to you. That's what we call justification. You're credited with righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. He reverses the death thing. St. Paul writes these words in Galatians 3. All of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You have put on Christ. His righteousness, His holiness, His perfection, it is yours. Everything He won in this battle is yours, including a life that never ends, the reversal of death itself. That's the kind of team Jesus is. Now, many sermons today, probably too many, will be about Jesus as your model, how with God's help you can overcome the devils in your life. But the truth is far better. We don't overcome the devil. Jesus has done that for us already. And he shares his victory with us. He shares the benefits, the fruits of that victory with you and with me. Now, having said that, it's human nature to ask this question. But what can we do? What is there for us to do? We want to do something. You know, people give up things for Lent. They'll give up chocolate, um, 
fatty food, I don't know. A lot of it has to do with improving self. But this is what Luther said about giving up something for Lent. He said, if you want to give up something for Lent, he said, the true fast is this. When God leads you into the wilderness areas of your life, when God disciplines you severely as a parent should discipline a child, don't complain. Accept it from God without complaint. As a fatherly, loving thing to do. Accept it. In other words, give up complaining and grousing about whatever God sends your way. He says that's the true fast that pleases God. Now, this is, we're pretty early in Lent. It began Ash Wednesday, and you know I've already broken that fast. I complain about the challenges God sends my way. And that's the reality about our ability to overcome the devil. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we say only Jesus can take the devil down. And I guess to use a football analogy, Jesus tackles the devil and you and I just pile on, okay? So if we give up complaining for Lent and maybe for a few hours we don't complain, for those few hours we're piling on the tackling that Jesus has already done. But thank God he did the tackling that we could never do. And that's the sermon I hope more and more people hear. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, amen.